everyone, and welcome to another edition of the V Auto Podcast. I'm Lance Helgeson with V Auto, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Today, we're going to talk about LIFO, the last in, first out accounting method that many dealers use for their new vehicles and, in some cases, their used vehicle inventories. Market conditions created a big LIFO tax hit for some dealers, and today, we'll be talking about how the National Automobile Dealers Association is working to get federal lawmakers and regulators to provide relief for dealers. My guests today are Paul Mitri, Senior Vice President of Regulatory Affairs for, da for NADA, and David Reagan, Executive Vice President for Legislative Affairs at NADA. Gentlemen, Thank you both for taking time for today's podcast and for sharing your perspective. Well, thank you for welcoming us today. We look forward to uh, connecting with your members. Excellent. And thank you, Paul. Now, gentlemen, it's probably fair to say that most of our listeners are aware of what LIFO is, at least by name. Now, Paul, perhaps can you share with us some of the reasons that LIFO has become a front and center tax liability for dealers here in 2022? Certainly. And Lance, thank you for having us. It really is a pleasure to be with you. The reason that LIFO has really become a front and center issue really has to do with dealer inventories. So LIFO, of course, is one of several accounting methods in which you account for your inventories. And it typically can be very beneficial in periods of inflation or when inventory levels are stable or increasing. But the converse is true as well. If you have periods of deflation, which we don't see that often, or periods of inventory declines, that is when LIFO, which typically can be very favorable, is not favorable. And we mm -hmm. certainly have experienced that during the pandemic. We saw that to a pretty fair extent in 2020 and a much greater extent in 2021. When you have inventory drops, it causes LIFO recapture. That means you're taking money into income. In this case, you're doing it unexpectedly. No one really foresaw any of the events that played out over the last couple of years. And it can really put you in a very difficult situation when it comes to tax planning and, and having to manage all the issues around it. So that's really why this has become a front and center issue. I see. And David, any additional thoughts there? I, I would just add that uh, one of the reasons why we've been able to engage is because over the years we've worked with outside accountants who represent uh, hundreds of dealers, and they're able to put us on the cutting edge of not just tax policy issues, but actual tax payment issues. So it's very important for us to be working with people who work with dealers on a day-to-day -day basis. And that was incredibly helpful in getting us ahead of the curve and spotting this issue and laying out the arguments to uh, both the regulators and the legislators. So let's take, you both have mentioned that there's a tax obligation here that dealers are, are on the hook for. Could could either of you give us a sense of the size of, of what dealers have seen? Are we talking couple hundred thousand million. I suppose it depends on the size of the dealer, but put us in the ballpark. Sure. Well, well, just to set the stage a little bit. So when we talk about inventory declines in 2020, what we witnessed was a 20.5% inventory decline across all light duty vehicles, which of course is very significant. It was triple that in 2021. It was a little bit over 59% hmm. over all classes of vehicles that is light duty vehicles. 
So anytime you have those type of inventory declines, you're going to really be looking at significant LIFO recapture issues. Now, of course, as you suggested, Lance, it really does depend on your situation. In 2020, that 20% figure is just an industry average. So you had some make, some brands where it was very significant, others where it was really a much more minor issue. It really depended on your circumstances. Of course, in 2021, with a 60% decline, we really saw everybody affected everyone facing the prospect of LIFO recapture, and it became a big issue. Now, in terms of quantifying it, if you were to survey dealers, you would get all kinds of responses on that because, again, it is very fact-specific. But on average, what we have noticed in data we've looked at is the income, or I should say the income tax that would have to be paid on the LIFO recapture income is several hundred thousand dollars on average. And, of course, you will talk to dealers that will tell you that they have many multiples of that. They could be looking at a six or even seven figure uh, income adjustment and actually tax liability situation because of what's happened here unexpectedly. So we're we're definitely talking about huge dollars. Again, something we always stress, not something in this instance anyone could plan for. This is not the typical cycle you see of kind of the ebb and flow of inventories. This was really something brought about by actions related to the pandemic. So it has been particularly difficult to manage. Mm -hmm. Right. This really is circumstances beyond the control of the dealer as the taxpayer. And also, uh, as Paul noted, it's an all facts and circumstances test. So uh, the uh, impact could be particularly onerous for a smaller dealer that has been in business for a long time and is carrying LIFO reserves over uh, 20, 30 years. Uh, That could uh, provide a much more significant impact uh, as a proportionate uh, impact on a dealership. And, and let me just, uh, before we talk about some of the work you guys are doing in, in Washington, D.C. To, to get relief for dealers, I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong or clarify if you could, that we're, we're talking roughly mid-May, so the, the tax deadline has passed. So some dealers have just footed the bill, some are have, have filed for extensions, and, and, and some may, in fact, be hoping for the relief that you folks are, are going for. Certainly, no, we, we think they're certainly hoping for the relief, but you're absolutely right. Uh, from a cash flow perspective, dealers typically will either have paid their income taxes, at which time the hope is that they could recoup what has been paid, or they've made estimated tax payments because they filed an extension where they do not have to file their, typically their pass-through entity returns until September 15th, and then their individual returns until October 15th. Either way, they would have made a payment, and the hope is that they could recoup that payment. Okay. Now, earlier here, we talked about how you at any, both of you at NADA and the organization have been tracking this issue, kind of saw it on the radar as early as 2020. And I understand the work on, on, on Capitol Hill has sort of taken two paths, the U.S. Treasury and now Congress. Um, Paul, I believe you uh, were in, in charge of the effort with the U.S. Treasury. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there and and where that initiative stands? Certainly. So shortly after the pandemic started and we started to get reports from dealers, and as Dave said, the CPAs that work with them that we work closely with, that dealers were looking at, or certainly many dealers were looking at these large inventory declines and would have a LIFO recapture issue. Then we started to look at, okay, is there relief that would be possible from the government? We know there's some existing tools in the Internal Revenue Code you can use but this could be too significant to manage it strictly through the existing 
mechanisms that exist. So when we talked about avenues of relief, what we recognized was in order to get relief, we would really have to start with the Treasury Department. If ever you were to go to Congress, you would really have to demonstrate that you've exhausted your administrative remedies. So we had to see, is there a way to try to get relief from Treasury? We noticed that there was a provision in the Internal Revenue Code, Section 473. And generally speaking, what it states is that the Secretary of the Treasury, if she finds that there is a major foreign trade interruption that made the replacement of inventories difficult or impossible, effectively what she can do is move back the end of year measurement date. Typically what you're doing is you're measuring inventories from the end of the previous year to the end of the current year. So that, that second measurement, the end of the current year, she can move that back by a period of up to three years. Hmm. That would give dealers a period of time to recoup their inventories so that they would hopefully not show a big drop in inventory that triggers life of recapture. So we saw this provision. A challenge was that it's never been used before. Uh, this hmm. came about 1980. Uh, the provision's never been utilized. There is no treasury regulation that implements it. There's no IRS guidance. So this really was a case of first impression, if you will, where we were asking Treasury to act. And I'll give you just a real quick snapshot. Obviously, this was very involved over the period of about 17 months. But through many letters, through many meetings, we really pushed for this relief, which we initially requested formally in November 2020. Treasury was not responsive. Now, of course, there was a change in administrations and we were dealing with different personnel. And there, there's a lot of stories behind all that. But at the end of the day, the relief was not forthcoming. Then NADA engaged members of Congress for support. Uh, we had two very strong letters that came from both the House uh, and the Senate back in early November to Treasury. That prompted Treasury for the first time to state, look, if we're going to provide relief under 473, the condition that has to be met is you have to show that there is a global supply chain crisis that has made the uh, replacement of inventories difficult or impossible. So they stated what the standard was. We then went to the Alliance of Automotive Innovators that represents the OEMs, dealer suppliers, mm -hmm. and we asked them, can you make the certification linking the global supply chain crisis to the inability to replenish inventories? They said they certainly could, and to their credit, they developed a very fact-specific, well-supported letter. They made the statement, the certification, at the same time, there was a presidential fact sheet where President Biden had effectively stated the same thing, that the absence of foreign microchips is making the replacement of inventories difficult or impossible. We married those two up. We attached them to a letter to Treasury this January, late January, where we said, you've set the standard. It has been met by these documents. We asked you to move forward expeditiously. There was still no Treasury response. Again, Congress was engaged. That produced another two very strong letters, this time collectively from 51 senators, that's from both parties, that went ahead and wrote Treasury, asked them to act. Treasury still at that point did not respond. They still said they lacked authority. So really, despite the best efforts of what we did and really some of the allies that we worked with, such as uh, you, know, you have a number of groups out there, AICPA and the LIFO Coalition, Everyone was pushing for the same thing to include bipartisan members of Congress, but Treasury was still unresponsive. And that is what prompted now the legislative effort to seek relief through two bills that have just been introduced. David, can you share a little bit, uh, picking up where Paul just left off? Tell us what's happening in Congress. 
Right, uh, certainly. And I think it's very important to emphasize uh, that we do substance and then we do politics <laughs> and substantively uh, the exhaustive efforts that Paul outlined, uh, which informed our advocacy at the regulatory branch at Treasury to try to get them to use existing law. Those efforts, when we exhausted our uh, administrative remedies, so to speak, those efforts paid dividends on the Hill because it helped us to explain the rationale why dealers were so adversely affected by this foreign trade uh, uh, disruption. And that in and of itself uh, was extremely valuable in engaging the Hill in the regulatory efforts. And then when those failed, then uh, the Hill has taken it upon themselves to introduce legislation. And not only that, the interchange between the Hill staff and the Treasury staff to talk about the complexities of Section 473 of the Code, to talk about this foreign trade interruption, to talk about all of these issues that are adversely affecting the uh, not just the uh, dealers, but the supply chain for the entire manufacturing community, and our efforts to get, as Paul said, from the manufacturers documentation of the specific problems that our members have had as a direct result of the, the global supply chain disruption, all of those efforts go into providing the foundation for legislative support. And so those efforts culminated last month in the introduction of legislation on both the House and the Senate side. Uh, on the Senate side, the legislation is S4105, and it's co-sponsored by Senator Brown from Ohio and uh, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. It's very important to note the bipartisanship here. Uh, you know, I'm sure people have, uh, listening understand um, how difficult it is in, of a legislative climate these days. So without bipartisan support, things really don't have much of a chance. And similarly, on the House side, we have very strong bipartisan co-sponsors as well. Uh, the legislation there is H.R. 7382, and that uh, is uh, introduced by uh, Congressman Kildee, a Democrat from Michigan, and uh, Congressman Arrington uh, from Texas. And the bill is identical. It's called companion legislation. That's very important because we, we now have two specific pieces of legislation, the same text, but it gives us the opportunity to develop very broad bipartisan co-sponsorship in both the House and the Senate. And we're highly confident that the legislation works on a technical level uh, because you know, we were able to work with uh, practitioners both tax lawyers and uh, uh, tax accountants who, who explained to us that, you know, how the specific aspects of the bill would, would work in practice. You know, we're, we're very cognizant of what the words on the page are. We, we mm -hmm. actually read legislation and, and uh, we draw upon the expertise that we have in-house and outside uh, because we want to make sure if something does get enacted into law that it actually delivers the relief that is intended, 
not just by members of Congress, but by our informed by our advocacy efforts, but that the actual technical aspects of the legislation work. And we're, we're confident that it works technically. We're confident that it's good public policy. And ultimately, it will enable dealers to retain very valuable working capital, retain their cash in their business, rather than cutting the check uh, or, or leaving the money in the federal treasury prematurely because they simply had no opportunity to replenish their inventory. Now, David, it is that with, pardon the pun, at the risk of getting too technical, are the technical aspects of this bill similar to what Paul described, where there's sort of a three-year offset yes. of the timeline? Right. Simply put, it gives dealers flexibility. For tax years 2020 and 2021, if you have paid, uh, already paid either estimated or finalized returns for those years, you will be able to, in essence, reopen that decision. And for the prepayments that you have made, you can use that those monies that are already resident in the federal treasury to offset future tax obligations. Uh, until uh, the end of tax year 2025, when you when you true up your final recapture number with respect to those two tax years, so we believe it gives you uh, gives dealers the flexibility that they need at a critical time uh, in, in the market. And, and Lance, I, I would just add one benefit to really as Dave was describing it, Congress's interaction with Treasury. They could see where the hangups with 473 were, whether it was a part of 473 or the way Treasury was applying it. So, for example, a major foreign trade interruption, there no longer needs to be a showing of that. Even though we think the facts clearly demonstrated that issue is taken off the table. As Dave said, there's relief for 2020 or 2021. There's a longer period to recoup inventory actually through the end of 2025, which is very favorable. And instead of getting your taxes back as inventory is rebuilt, there's actually the ability to recoup these payments that were made upon the next filing of your regular tax return when you make an election. Keep in mind, all this would have to be worked out by Treasury. The way the bill is, they would have a 90-day period to come out with particulars. But Congress has set some very good standards, really, in there for relief. And it's something that, if it goes through, should be very beneficial to dealers on life. And a key point, you don't have to file amended returns to get the benefit of the bill. Filing an amended return can be very expensive for dealers with multiple entities. Uh, so this really prevents a, an opportunity for offset, uh, which is a de facto amended return without paying the administrative costs. So that's very helpful. And then, as Paul said, this is a legislative decision that the fundamental standard to apply this section of the law has been met. Really, the only thing left for regulatory discretion is how dealers will compute LIFO numbers and LIFO recapture for the relevant tax years. And we are confident, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, expertise within the IRS to administer LIFO. It's a complicated aspect of the code already. It's been in the code for a long time. There are regulations and uh, there's plenty of expertise within the IRS to do that. So uh, we're confident that we can uh, work with the agency to get these, uh, the extent if this bill does get passed, that uh, we don't believe the regulatory hangups will be significant. Now, Paul, you've, you've been on the Hill for some time. You've, you've worked on maybe this, I don't know how this issue stacks in the pecking order of other things you've worked on. What's your gut say about the, the, the likelihood of this coming to fruition? 
Well, first of all, in terms of the magnitude of tax issues we've worked on, there have been some huge ones over the years. You know, many dealers will remember Unicap from 2005 to 2010. That, that actually had a very favorable ending. It took some time, of course, but it worked out. This definitely is up there. Again, the dollar amounts are, are very, very significant. And in terms of the likelihood of success, Dave would be the best one to give you a snapshot of that. But I would just simply say that, of course, you know, support from dealers is key. Support from ATs is key. They've always been very supportive in these areas. That type of thing can be very beneficial. One thing we are optimistic about is this is drawn, and Dave alluded to this, support from across the aisle. There's so many issues here now where they are so split, they're so divided. There really has been all kinds of support. Democrats and Republicans, both houses of Congress, we've not really heard objections to it. People just have been, uh, sounded very favorable about it. And as I think Dave will explain, what becomes key is getting the requisite support, which of course I think we're well on the way to doing, but also finding an appropriate vehicle to attach it to, because it typically is not the case that these are passed as standalone measures. Right, uh, Paul's absolutely correct. We need to find a broader uh, vehicle. Uh, tax legislation rarely, if ever, is enacted as an individual bill. Uh, it moves as part of a broader package. Our task, our challenge, quite frankly, and where folks on the call can help is we need to get as many co-sponsors, as many Democrats and as many Republican co-sponsors for both bills, the bill in the House and the bill in the Senate uh, over the next few weeks. The more co-sponsors that we have for these two bills, the better chance that we have to attaching this provision to a broader vehicle that is actively under consideration by Congress and has a high likelihood of going to the president. So our, our opportunity for success are, will, will be directly affected by the number of co-sponsors that we get. Uh, we are encouraged about the groundwork that we laid with the letters urging Treasury to act. There were 92 uh, House members on those letters and we had 51 senators on similar letters. So that's a great foundation to, uh, for finding co-sponsors. And then our grassroots network is generally very effective when we provide uh, a specific task, which is, you know, dear member of Congress, dear Senator, please co-sponsor. Uh, in this instance, please co-sponsor S4105, or for House members, please co-sponsor uh, S7382. And I would encourage your listeners, to the extent that they are connected with their state and metro associations, please contact them, ask them how you can approach uh, members of your respective delegations, because our our, our Association executives are very effective at packaging and uh, um, in a, providing a multiplier effect, if you will, uh, of our grassroots network. And they really do a good job of meeting uh, members of Congress in the district and meeting senators in the state. Uh, and there may be opportunities to do that. Uh, and then additionally, you can always uh, uh, contact the NADA Legislative Office at uh, legislative at NADA.org or uh, our, our website, uh, which you can see on the screen if you need more information about this uh, specific legislation. So uh, we would welcome the additional grassroots support. Uh, and uh, the other point I would make about your state and metro executives, if you have not 
become engaged with your state or metro association, I would encourage you to do that, not just so you have an opportunity to magnify your voice on legislative issues uh, that affect you at the federal level, but they are incredibly important at helping to protect the franchise system in your state capitals. They also can provide an, an incredible amount of very practical doing business information about state and local advertising restrictions, state and local tax issues. So I would encourage you to be active members of your state and metro associations, uh, uh, separate and apart from uh, the legislative imperative. Thank you. Thank you, David and Paul, too. I think you, you that was one of the questions I had is what can dealers do? And you've outlined mm -hmm. perfectly what the, the calls to action are here in terms of getting in touch with your, your legislators and your state and local associations. So that's great. Um, now, we spent a bunch of time uh, as a final question. We've been talking about LIFO, but that's not the only thing on either of your desks at the moment. So <laughs> what are some of the top priorities, other priorities? That, that each of you may be pursuing here in the months ahead? Well, maybe I can start on the regulatory side and, and Dave can tell you a couple of things on the Hill. So just very quickly in terms of real top of mind issues that dealers need to be focused on and soon, first is please look at the FTC safeguards rule amendments. This is something that affects every dealer. It's very involved and it requires every dealer to be in compliance by December 9th. And what they have to do is their customer information safeguards programs is going to need a series of enhancements and they're going to have to tie in quite a bit with their vendors. So that is critically important. And also on the credit side, it is very important that dealers really pay attention to what they're doing in terms of fair credit compliance as it relates to dealer participation, of course, in the finance charge they earn for originating a finance contract and also the sale of voluntary protection products. Those are both being heavily scrutinized right now in Washington, D.C. and other places. It's very important that dealers pay attention to their own compliance activities in that regard. We have optional programs to assist dealers that can help them with that. But regardless of the direction they go, it's something that definitely requires their attention. Good. And David? Well, you might uh, not be surprised here. We play both offense and defense. No. So, uh, <laughs> both sides. Uh, and, and sometimes in the same legislation. For instance, last year we were very active on the Biden administration's proposal, the so-called BBB, the Build Back Better bill, which would have significantly increased spending in certain areas, but it also would have increased taxes to pay for that spending. And when that legislation first came out on the House side, it was very, very disadvantageous on the tax raising side, disadvantageous to pass through entities. Uh, you know, the combination of the rate increases, the reduction in the very valuable 199A uh, exclusion that enables uh, pass throughs to retain 20% of their uh, earnings in the business. Uh, um, free of uh, federal taxation, it would have increased personal rates. There were also some proposals earlier on uh, to, uh, you know, significantly reduce uh, the estate tax exclusion. There were uh, proposals even to tax, uh, uh, remove the stepped up basis and, and, and tax um, uh, unrealized income at death. So those types of things, we were able to work directly and through uh, very valuable business coalitions. We were able to mitigate a significant amount of that tax burden. And then similarly, uh, we also worked 
with the technical tax writers on the EV tax incentive. Uh, NADA uh, was supportive of a tax, a consumer tax incentive, as long as it was available to uh, manufacturers on an equal playing field. We were supportive of that. And we also worked at a technical level to uh, make sure if there is such an increase uh, in the consumer uh, tax credit for electric vehicles, that it works in the showroom, uh, it works for consumers and works for dealers. Uh, and then also, you know, when issues come up in the market uh, that uh, create uh, adverse problems for consumers or for dealers, uh, sometimes we engage. In, for instance, uh, uh, we recently joined an effort in support of a bill to try to reduce uh, catalytic theft conversion. Uh, it's increasingly a significant problem, not just for consumers, but also uh, we hear stories from dealers who get hit multiple times, of course, uh, by uh, catalytic converter theft. Uh, it's a big problem. The replacement converters are very difficult. You know, a lot of times because of the supply chain issues, it takes a while to get those. They're very expensive. So uh, we're supporting legislation there federally, um, H.R. 69, uh, 6394, H.R. 6394. And the goal there is really just to provide more transparency to mark the catalytic converters, also establish some federal criminal penalties that don't exist. Uh, and to create more transparency in the market, uh, to enhance deterrent and enhance the ability of uh, state and local law enforcement uh, to track these criminals. Uh, and if you need more information on that, you can go to, to, to our uh, uh, website, uh, NADA.org, particularly the legislative affairs page. Uh, and the last pitch I'll make is the for you folks listening on the call, um, you add life to the paper in Washington, you add life to the paper in your state legislature, and you add life to the paper for your local planning and zoning board, your, your local city council. You know, you are the taxpayer, you are the constituent, you are the jobs provider. You uh, should be engaged uh, on a day-to-day -day basis uh, with folks who determine uh, the decisions made at the local, state, and federal level in your government. And, and if you work, just kind of think through your business life, who you've come in contact with over the last year or two, uh, where those folks are. Some are involved in campaigns, some are actually uh, running for office themselves, whether it's uh, local, state, or federal. Just make an effort to uh, welcome them into your world, welcome them into your dealership, and explain what you do for your community and how valuable that you are driving a local economy, a major jobs producer, a major revenue producer for state uh, and local governments. And uh, uh, you would be surprised, you know, one day after a few years of doing that, you look up and, whoa, that, you know, one of your friends may become the Speaker of the House or one of your friends may become the majority leader of the United States Senate. I've watched it happen over the years, uh, and uh, that's uh, a very serendipitous moment for us. Uh, it enables us to get life to the paper, practical effect uh, by, you know, of, of how important dealers are, and and translates into sounder public policy, not just for dealers, but for local communities and for consumers. It's a great. It's a, a another reminder that the car business is a relationship business, it, and it extends way beyond the relationship with dealers and their customers. David and Paul, thank you both for taking time for this podcast, helping us understand LIFO and and where things are at with that issue and the other things 
that you're working on on behalf of dealers with NADA in DC. Grateful. Thank you, Lance. We, we appreciate it. And we know that you have a loyal listening body and we really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to have this opportunity. Excellent. My pleasure. And folks listening to the podcast, thank you for joining us for this episode. Until next time, stay well. Thank you.